Podcast number two. I'm your host, Richie Allen. Today, I am joined by Tom Gleason, the owner of Bunsen, which is a popular eatery based in Dublin that has grown from strength to strength since it's opened in 2013. First of all, Tom, I must ask you, how are you getting on today? I'm doing good today, yeah. Can't complain. Good, good. Um, well, like even I was chatting to you on the way up, up the stairs to the library and it just you were saying you haven't been back here in a while, and I'm just wondering what if you could describe your experiences here in St Michael's as a past pupil. Yeah, uh, how did it shape you kind of as a person? So I left here in 2003. Uh, I had been here for 14 years, hard time since I was five or six, I guess. I was junior infants all the way up. Uh, started in. Does that make me start? I think in. To. 1988 I guess I started junior infants with a lot of the OGs like Father Little Father McHugh all these people who you know are now moved on or passed on unfortunately Mm. but um, my older brother was here my younger brother was going to join after me so I went through the junior school I guess you don't realise it at the time but when you look when you grow up and you meet other people from other junior schools you realise that Michael's a particularly privileged junior school yeah Um, you don't get too much exposure to the wider world in that junior school when you're bombing around in your blazer and your <laughs> jumper and your tie. Uh, but um, it was really good, happy experience. I only had happy memories there. Lots of, you know, nice teachers and big characters. And uh, it was a good place to, to grow up. And then you go, moved into senior school, um, I guess, 97, 98. And... Uh, Again, I only really have very happy memories here. Um, it was, I guess it's an all-boys school. The jury's out whether that leads you to total emotional development or yeah. not. But, uh, you know, I found it to be a nice place to be. Obviously, you clash with people some of the time, students and teachers. And I got suspended a good bit and got detention a good bit and things like that. But mostly it was all my own doing. I was pretty cheeky as a kid uh, coming up through school. So... Uh, never got in serious trouble though, but yeah, I would have to say I had a great time. I guess you walk through the school now, you see a lot of things are different, you know. Um, obviously, there's a lot more facilities here now. There's a much bigger sports influence than when I was here. Um, I think, I think we won one for the for the six years that I was in the senior school. I think we won two two first round SET matches, and that was it. And never got any further than that. So, obviously, rugby. The outlook has yeah. changed since then, but we were certainly like the Chicago Cubs for a while there, you know. <laughs> Not where many we days dead. out. Yeah, so um, it's good to see how things have come on. It's, it's, it's great to see the school. The school looks great today. It's, it's, I only have positive feelings being back here. Super, super. And after you came through the senior school, did you go straight into college? I did. I went down the CEO process like I guess loads of people do and you try and have a stab at what you're going to do for the rest of your life when you're 17 which is obviously not an easy thing to do so I put down I think I put down Bess and Trinity as my top thing but I think I knew I wasn't going to get it but 
I'd done this thing in sixth year where, like, I'd always been a bad speller, but I kind of sought out this dyslexia exemption that was going around for your leaving. So Dare, I think it's... Well, dare. I don't know. It was sort of... It was very underground at this time. Yeah. I, I had never met anyone who'd done it, but... Um, what, what you had to do was go to this nun's house, right? And she did, like, an aptitude test on you. Okay. And the aptitude test was across the ten things, like your spatial reasoning and your verbal reasoning and all of that. But then there was a spelling section. And... I think if you just took a dive in that spelling section, you were deemed dyslexic. Okay. I think you had to do well in the other... You couldn't be just stupid across the board or you were just stupid across the board. Yeah. But if you did well in everything except spelling, you were deemed dyslexic. So then that gives you like extra time and you're leaving. Yeah. Um, Coloured paper, all the perks you can yeah. possibly get. So I'm sure that helped me. But then I still didn't get enough points in my leaving to get into best. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to get this. Not the end of the world. I, I think I, my next choice was Commerce and UCD and I would have got that. But then the offers come in in the CAO and they say, oh, you've been offered best. Um, and ultimately I realized they have to fill a, they have to fill a dyslexia quota Close in these it, universities. Yeah. So I got picked up by that. And then I was into best, which was good. I was really glad to go to Trinity. But the course was probably beyond me a bit intellectually like I couldn't crack the maths I couldn't crack anything so like I got into Bass it was really nice good to be in Trinity but I just failed and failed and failed the exams um, uh, just constantly so I failed first year had to repeat the summer then I failed second year had to repeat the summer failed that had to repeat second year failed the summer so I had to compensate then uh so I think I got like I, I never got more than 37 in accounting that was the thing that always killed me was the accounting I just couldn't couldn't ever just sit down to study it so I was still having a good time in college but I just really the exams were killing me so then third and fourth year I, spe- I specialised into business and politics and uh, I found that a bit easier because there was less numbers in that and you could just crank out to the essays um, so I finished college then what did I get like a 2-2 I think in my degree uh and that was my university experience, I guess. Like you were saying, like you were failing, failing constantly. Was that down to a fact that you didn't enjoy your college or was it just the academic side of it you just could not keep up with? I don't know. I felt that when you come out of school, whether this is true of St. Michael's or all schools, it's so structured in school, you know. You get yeah. your homework and you're given a deadline on it. The, the freedom that university provided me with just killed me, you know. It was just like this essay is due in, you know, six weeks. I just that was just that means that was due never that essay yeah, you know so exactly, I just yeah. I couldn't I just couldn't ever really deal with that so I could, and, and just that you had to study on your own time I just never meshed well into that that environment so uh, yeah I just and then I, I also I come from doing past maths I never really was that brilliant with numbers so I just yeah I just couldn't I couldn't just get out at night the spreadsheets and figure out the depreciation for you know a business that i had no interest in (laughs) you know i just i I just couldn't motivate myself to do it i guess you know yeah cool and from there like where where did you go basically so after that i really didn't know what i wanted to do and you know i spent a lot of time just fucking around doing nothing to be honest with you uh and a lot of my friends were going to... Uh, a lot of my friends were either going into... At that, that, that was... I left college about 2008, so the peak yeah. of the financial crash. Yeah. And the whole ethos at that time was become... Now, I guess it's IT or it's something else, but at that time, it was become an accountant, become an accountant. Uh, 
you know, all the CEOs of the top companies in the world are, are accountants, but I mean, I was never going to be a CEO yeah. of a top. That's a, that was a one line that was thrown around. So all the best people from my year in college, I guess, were being just going off to do accountancy or say consultancy or, you know, into the investment banks. But my results were so bad that, I mean, that wasn't even an option for me. So I couldn't even consider that, which was liberating in a way. So you had to find another path to go. So I... I went instead of doing a lot of people went to Smurfit, I guess, to do a master's because it was coming into the era where you wouldn't get a job without a master's. That mm. was just starting to change around that time. Uh, you wouldn't get one of those kind of jobs without a master's. So I just went and did the Ballymaloo Cookery School, which is about the same price as doing a master's, but it's only three months. And that was brilliant because I just thought that the best case scenario, maybe it would give me a germ of an idea. Or the worst case scenario, I'd be able to just, you know, make my dinner for the rest of my life, <laughs> which is a good upside, I it guess. Is. So uh, I did that, and that's brilliant. Like it's 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 like a holiday camp. You go down, live for three months in in West Cork, uh, and it's it's just. Where's East Cork? I'm very bad on binary. Tra- One that, or the other. Yeah. Well, like <laughs> if I get that wrong, now it's going to seem absolutely terrible. Yeah. And it's in Cork. Anyway, it's a it's like an organic farm in the countryside, and. Uh, you just wake up every day and deal with nice people, make nice food. It's it's really like an amazing thing to do. And I really enjoyed that. And I guess it started the germ of a lot of ideas in my head of what I would like to do after that. But after that, I ultimately didn't end up going into cooking straight away because I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And the graduate visa program for New York or for America had come up. So I said I would go and do a year there. And the other thing that I'd kind of been juggling with or I was interested in was to try and become a TV writer to sign write for a sitcom. So that was just a far-fetched idea that I thought mm. I'd roll the dice on. So I went to America and tried to do that for a whole year working unpaid internships, I guess, something that's, you know, at that time, coming out of the financial crisis, you know, an unpaid internship was not a common phenomenon as it is now, uh, whereas I guess everyone has to do them now. And it's like obviously a, a bad thing to do, but... I was doing those at the time. I knew that was part of the process, particularly in America. It was much more of an American thing, but I just worked them in low-level production companies, you know, just spend the afternoon deleting videotapes or something, just crazily (laughs) inane bullshit jobs. And then you spend your other time writing scripts for existing TV shows that you then send off as spec scripts of your work. Um, You know, so you write a script for, you know, the US office, I remember I wrote a script for, Family Guy I wrote a script for, uh, and you just keep drafting and drafting until you're happy with it and then you send it off to try and get picked up some agent but I mean you know the thing about you know in Ireland there's always somebody you can get to particularly when you go to a school like this that you can say how do I do this or someone has gone down that path before you but that whole process was just like a massive brick wall Mm. I always felt like when I was posting I used to post off all big bundles of scripts to these production companies and all sorts of different coloured envelopes and things to try and get their attention Um, but I just always felt like they were just you know the machine that shreds Christmas trees like you know just been throwing them into that because it was I never made one bit of progress over there I did all the work and and I tried to get creative about how I contacted people I remember like for NBC getting the, t- the guy's name there who took the spec scripts and just you try you know a hundred combinations of his name with at NBC.com yeah. and I could like eventually I got through to him he was like you can't keep doing this <laughs> and he, he said you got to go the other way and get and I, again I just another brick wall but it was it was a good exercise in perseverance and all the time I spent in college not doing essays it was kind of like I was now doing 
that but I had actually put my time and I gave it my full attention so I really enjoyed that and then on the weekends the odd place I would pick up a bit of kitchen work here and there just to you know because I was curious about that and the whole time I spent in New York was in eating in like the best pizza place or the best southern barbecue or the best hamburger place of which there's so many good places in America it's so far ahead of us in that respect so I was really learning, I was just really, get, I was, it was really building in me a frustration of saying, why can't you get this in Ireland? I wonder why, is it the quality of the beef or is it, you know, what, what's the reason why we can't just get this standard? We should be able to. So that idea then was sort of germinating in my head. Okay. Yeah. So like, keep going with my life story. <laughs> yeah, keep shooting. Yeah. So like, obviously that would have, I'd say one thing I would ask you about yeah. your trip in America, like how, like what real lesson did you learn from that, that obviously proved vital? In starting up Bunsen, I'd say. I don't or know. I was there one. Yeah. I feel like persevering in an industry where you have no one else. Like when I ultimately started the restaurant, I didn't really have anyone I could ring and be like, how do you acquire a lease? Or, you know, uh, how do you deal with, you know, a grease trap or some, yeah. some really bespoke restaurant issue? So I was just used to sort of just going it on my own and just trying to figure things out for myself a bit. That was probably a big thing. But I guess living in New York or living in a big city away has uh, intangible, benefit, intangible benefits that you can't really pick up. I guess it broadens your horizon in a way that you can't quite put your finger on. I, I, it's what I would say to people if they were asking me now, younger people saying, should I go and live in this city yeah. for a year? I would say, yeah, it'll stand to you and you won't realise it. Well, yeah, I, de- I definitely do think it is important to go abroad. Like everyone who I know personally who has gone abroad that like goes to the United States yeah. or goes to Canada, they always seem to come up and come back and have an experience to say or something they've learned. While like I do think it becomes a bit, you know, I don't want to say boring, but there's only so much you can get from Ireland in your younger years, especially when you're going through college, I feel, that when you don't know exactly what kind of career path you want to go down, I do definitely think, as you were saying, to get away for a year is actually really worthwhile and beneficial. Yeah, no, I'd recommend it for anyone, sure. Um, And then after your trip to the US, did you come back home straight away? Yeah, I came back home straight away. And I had also been, throughout this time, I had been watching, uh, you know, I had always kept my eye, I, I didn't really know about food, which way you'd like to go. Would you like to do a volume business like burgers and try and make a really good individual burger or try and start a big restaurant that was fine dining and try and go for, you know, all the accolades yeah. and everything you could. Mission so, stars. Yeah, mission stars. I mean, I don't know. That's, that's, that's something that's going to be not easy to get. But yeah. I'd always watch this guy called Heston Blumenthal who was an English chef um, and he had this three mission star restaurant called The Fat Duck. So I'd sent him and... The letter I sent him would have been very much of the type I'd been sending production companies. Like, I had really practiced my opening paragraph, compliment the guy, massage his ego. Second paragraph, tell one sentence about you. You know, I had that ass-kissing letter polished really well. So I sent that off to the Fat Duck, and they said, right, you can come and do a trial here. So when I came back from New York and my visa was finished and I hadn't become a TV writer, I went there um, to... It's just outside London, just beyond Heathrow, in a nice little village, and... You go there and it's like a restaurant with 45 seats, but it only ha- but it has 45 chefs working on a night. Wow. So the people pay like, I think it's 290 sterling for their dinner. And that's 18 courses over the course of five hours, God. including some mad shit. Like one course you get 
you, you get a set of headphones that plays like the sounds of the seaside whilst you eat the food, really? which is like a fish. <laughs> so it's very much, people say experimental or molecular gastronomy. Others would say just catering to the jaded palates of rich people who've had <laughs> yeah. every other experience. But either way, really interesting place to work. And at that time, it was, you know, pretty widely regarded as the, the best restaurant in the world. Now that is so subjective, but yeah. in that fine dining Michelin field it was seen as that so you were going to work in a place where you know the people there had massive ambition and real they were the best in their field so to speak so just just doing that in any industry i guess is good because you see people you know working extremely hard and extremely high standards but it was it was really hard work like you you were there at six in the morning and you usually finished at around one or two and then you're back into work and you cycle like that so and the work could be anything from like plating up dishes for customers which they let you do eventually to all the way down to you know like scale scale 25 salmon which could take you like six hours just scaling salmon um into a bin bag so it's sort of monastic in that respect in that they would say that like and there's an element of truth in this after you've scaled salmon you know six hours a week for you know six weeks you have a pretty good understanding of a salmon you know because you've, you've held it in your hands you've seen so that would be their argument when you're doing it obviously you're just cursing it going this is bullshit yeah. but but there's something there's probably something kind of monastic or, or meditative in that and you get a higher appreciation for the ingredient is what they would say but overall it's not like the it isn't like the kitchens you see on the tv shows where gordon ramsay is just like it's going crazy going crazy or threatening people. to beat people yeah. up it's more it's more focused no one is raising their voice there's just a silent chronic expectation of pressure that you can't screw up and very high standards so really good place to work and and at the end of it you've done those consecutive 17 hour days you're like right well that's it's like an endurance thing saying can i run a marathon can i do anything it's you're like okay well that's I've I've gone and done those hours now. I know I can do them. Uh, I have that in the bank that I'm I'm not going to wilt under that kind of time. So the main takeaway I had after all that was I may as well just do that for myself, you know. Because I read Heston Blumenthal's book at the time and the opening chapter is like, I worked for two weeks in one of these kitchens like I was doing at the time. And he was yeah. like, and then I realized I could learn everything from books. So I was like, you know, this is a fallacy because, you, sorry, I'm working for free for him at that time, you know? Yeah. So of the 45 chefs that are working, about 10 of them are just there for free, trying to get full-time jobs or just trying to get experience like I was. So I just thought that was a bit of a hypocrisy that he had said, I, I you know, I don't, this is like the unpaid internship things, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, did, did, the, did the people who found those companies work the same length of unpaid internship? I don't know. Probably not. It's, it's tough to swallow that, you know? So... Right. And I also thought with the with the experience in the fat duck that you could get about seventy percent of the information out of there after three months, which I did. But if you wanted to get to ninety ninety five percent, you would have to spend ten years. You would have to go deep, deep down and reach the Buddhist level of understanding that those lads had, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just thought I'd banked enough for me to 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 go away with it. But I was, I I, I had all I needed at that point to take forward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what did Bunsen come shortly after that, or was there still? So then I moved a good back. To, to I moved back to Ireland, and I tried to write one more TV show with my cousin then, um, and I submitted to the BBC, and 
I got down to like the last 50 out of a 2,000 script competition. So we were pretty close, but that was the end of it. Didn't go anywhere. I never was looked. Was it a comedy? It was a comedy, yeah. Uh, it was sort of loosely based on, which I've actually seen Mario Rosenstock do now, which is, you know Donald Ski in that chat? Yeah. Mario Rosenstock does a version of him where he's extremely polite and upbeat and okay. positive, and then the cameras caught roll- stop rolling and he's just cursing at all the <laughs> other... That was the loose principle of my TV show, that it was a celebrity chef that, and I kind of feel this is true of the likes of Jamie Oliver, that like, you know, if he had to drag his kids across the country to do a photo shoot, he'd do it, you know, yeah. you know, just like, but then they have to be presented in a very happy way. It's, it's presenting this ridiculously positive lifestyle where the ingredients are all picked from the garden. But if push came to shove and he had to go and, buy the ingredients in an Asda and you know he'd yeah, do it you know yeah, exactly. and it was it was just that was the central conflict of the but uh, obviously it did get picked up yeah. I don't think the other character it wasn't well enough developed an idea okay but but I had written that with my cousin who was about three years younger than me and in the course of doing that over about a year me and him got to know each other very well and ultimately he would end up working in Bunsen with me so he is yeah so that's how I that just doing that, even though it was nothing, there was there was something to be gained out of it in the end, you know. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned it there, the B word that we need to discuss. How basically did Bunsen as an idea form? So Bunsen as an idea formed, I guess, like a lot of these things where it's a frustration. So I thought you couldn't get an iceberg. I was raised on Eddie Rockets and it was very good. You know, at the time I, I enjoyed still it. Still going. Yeah, still <laughs> going. I would go up to Eddie Rockets and Donnybrook and it's still going real strong, Eddie Rockets, but... Um, I don't know, I sort of felt like as I grew up, either their standard went or my taste matured or something, but I just wasn't hitting the spot anymore. And when you went to London or New York, you just got way better burgers. And I just thought, why is that the case? And then the likes of Joe Burger came along and they were something else, you know. They did all their own homemade relishes and, you know, lots of different stuff all over, burgers and guacamole and everything. And I, I, I thought that was interesting, but it wasn't again for me. So in New York, there's places like, the burger joint, Shake Shack was just get just really Shake Shack was moving on to their fourth unit, I think, when mm. I was in New York. So they were really just starting to accelerate. And again, that was that single menu, simple concept idea. There's a couple of other places like Corner Bistro, um, Five Napkin Burger. So there was all these brilliant burger places that were just so much better than anything we had in Ireland. And I just thought to satisfy myself if I was in Dublin, where would I go to eat that burger? That wasn't there. So I just thought I'll try and make a bun. I'll try and get all this different beef and see how, if I can replicate this. Because the other ingredients weren't complicated. It's just classic American ingredients beyond that. So I was just... At this point, I was on the dole living in my back of my parents' house. So I was yeah. about 20... What was I? Like 25 or 26 at this point, And it was bleak enough times. But I think I also had train tracks on my teeth at that time as well. So <laughs> things were really going against me but so in hibernation yeah in hibernation making burgers in my mum's kitchen <laughs> so like the, the ladies were lining up at that point but so I worked away at this recipe anyway I bought like a domestic mincer for myself and I just um, went down to my butcher and just kept annoying him to get these various bits of meat and tried to just work out what was it that was making these American burgers great because American beef is very different to Irish beef like the animals are about twice the size they're pumped full of all sorts of stuff that's not allowed in the EU so you get much more consistency and they also have a much better national grading system for beef where there's this USDA prime which is like the top 10% and then there's another grade which is the top 10% of the top 10% so it's 
it's much more of a standard product as well. So the flavor is always the same. Whereas Irish beef, there's not as much of a grading system. So you have to go out and find out exactly what breed it is you want, uh, what sort of quality you want. So I just did that for ages and mixed lots of blends of beef, lots of different parts of the animal until I found that sort of American flavor profile that I thought was like a delicious New York style hamburger. And then the bun, what I did was like baking bread domestically is very hard because there's so many variables with anything, you know, even Mm. the flour that you buy in the supermarket, one bag is not going to be the same as the next bag because the moisture content will be different. And it's hard to get, it's hard to get consistent results from baking domestically. So I tried making all these different buns, tried all these different recipes and ultimately got something that I was pretty happy with and close. And then I just opened the yellow pages and got onto lots of different butchers in Dublin or bakers, I should say in Dublin and was like, can I trial this recipe with you? Um, can I come out? And I met a guy out in Tala who was real decent and I took about three afternoons with him where, you know, he was just really encouraging. He was just interested in the process. I had no restaurant training at this point. But after three attempts with him, with my recipe, we got something very close that he would then be able to scale and supply my restaurant with buns. So I had that and I had the meat ready to go. And that was a year before I ever even opened the door in a restaurant. So then you spend all your time looking for a premises, which is really difficult again because it's a new problem that you don't really know and didn't really know anyone who had taken a restaurant premises so you go around and you see a shoe shop that's closing down you say right i'll take that and their landlord says no you can't put a restaurant here there's just a million problems you encounter like that or someone else outbids you or you know they say covenant covenant is the term of like your strength of your case that you're going to be putting forward for your business and mine is absolutely terrible i'm going up against starbucks or costa and they're like, this guy hasn't a clue. But actually, the, the the way I got it in the end was I met the landlord of my place in Wexford Street. And he was just a huge, uh, he's a massive rugby a la Cadu, a Mary's guy. And he just wanted to talk about schools rugby for the whole thing. And I knew enough, because Mike has been doing well at that time. Yeah. I knew enough just to carry me through that conversation. And that's really like, that was an element of being part of a Holy Ghost school that got me... That got me over the line at that right point. Right place, right time. And he ultimately was like, okay, I can, I'm can. i willing to accept this guy as a tenant. And that's how I got into Wexford Street, which at the time, this is about four years ago now, was a much, it was a much less hip street than yeah. it is now. Now there's lots of new restaurants there and building and everybody kind of wants to get in there. But at the time it was a bit rougher. So we got in just at the right time there. Yeah. And yeah. Interesting. And then with that, you've got your premises. You've got your idea for the food. Yeah. What comes next? Obviously, you're going to have to finance it. You're going to have to work on... What yeah, type. financing, I'd sorted it? out before that. So I'd gone to the banks and been like, can I get money? And they were like, we'll give you 600 euros, like a standard credit card overdraft. So I screwed there. So I had to raise the money from friends and family to begin with. Uh, and that was the only way it could have been done. So people ultimately have to take a chance on you. Yeah. So... Then you're left with this lease. As soon as you get the lease, you're legally obliged to start paying that rent. So yeah. that's just there's no way out of that. You have to open up. It's coming down the line. And people always say we're worried you'd fail at that point. But at that point, you're, you're so committed that there's no point in worrying that you're going to fail. If it fails, it fails. But thinking about it isn't really an option. So you have to hire staff. And, and your first time you interview waitresses, you feel like a complete charlatan because you know you're way more nervous than them yeah. and you're you're interviewing them on a building site because the restaurant isn't open yet they're like what the fuck's going on here so 
you know, there's a million of those decisions every day, decisions you're making for the first time or situations you're faced with for the first time. Um, and you really don't have a clue because I'd never really run, I'd never run a restaurant before. You yeah. know, I'd never, I'd only had some experience in, in, in more fine dining kitchens. But at that point, my cousin came and worked for me. He had just left his job as an economist because he was sick of it. And he just started working in the front of house on the very first day. So he was a good help from that moment on. But uh, yeah, you know, like, yeah, that's, that's really how we got the doors open. And it was. And how much of those was it all on you when it came to the interior of the place or did you have to just surround yourself with a team that ultimately would make the decisions in relation to staff, in relation to how it was presented, how the social media campaign would be pushed? You can kind of do all that stuff yourself to yeah. begin with. I mean, like the interior design, we used a company to do that for us. But like when it's your first one, you're there every single day with them and you're, you're governing a lot of their decisions. So yeah, you do get a small bit of a team and you've got a builder and that kind of thing. But you're just really muddling through in a way because you don't know. I've never, you know, now when I look back, it's hard to believe that, like, naivety gets you so far because you don't know the problems you're going to face. But it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that it was, I did it in such a disorganized way right. you know, or with such little knowledge. So, but, but you know, people are more likely to help you when you're in that position, you, you know, yeah, where you yeah. don't know anything. Okay. Yeah. And... Was there a stage initially, because I could imagine, as you said, you weren't hugely like nervous or thinking of the negatives when you open it, but like, was there a challenging point? I'd imagine the first six months, like a few of the people associated might have had maybe a bit of doubt about it, but like, was there any noticeable challenges that were presented in front of you that you were kind of thinking, Jesus, I didn't expect this to happen? Or I remember it before you opened, sailing? you obviously get the standard little bit of Irish begrudgery where people are like... Oh, I don't know, you know, it's only burgers or, uh, you know, you got to do more than that. You have to do a chicken burger or, um, you know, how's it different to any rockets? So you have to try and overcome a bit of that negativity to begin with. And then when you open, like I knew my break even, I knew I didn't have to sell a crazy amount of burgers. I just had to sell a certain amount that, and we kind of hit that from the first week. So it was never losing money. It was always making money from the first week. So that lets you breathe a little yeah. bit easier for sure. But there's times in that first you know, we opened in we opened in June, and then it was one of the hottest summers ever. And people don't really come in to eat burgers, or they'll cook them at home with their barbecues on a really hot day. So you're definitely standing there, and there's no customers coming in on a Saturday because it's a really hot Saturday, and and you don't have the you're not experienced enough to know well this will pass. You know, you just yeah. you're looking at it minute by minute and panicking every minute at that point. But after a while, after about after about coming towards the end of that summer around October, November, I remember we started getting really good reviews and things like national newspapers and, and a couple of blogs, like that blog, The Love in Dublin thing, which is yeah. now an insane, well, pretty crazy and yeah. covers absolutely everything. It's huge now. Like. But at the time, it had real, it had real clout in terms of food. They only did food reviews and it was really, when it was at its peak, it gave us a glowing review and that really accelerated our, our business. More so than anything, more so than a review in the Irish Times or Independent. And that pushed us on. And then we really just gathered momentum by word of mouth. Like we did all, the, I did all the social media, myself and my cousin. We just used to try and think what would be interesting or cool to begin with um, and put stuff up and do kind of cool competitions if we could. But, you know, after about eight months of being open, there was pretty much a queue at all the busy meal times. Um, so, you know, lunch and dinner almost every day, there's a queue. 
So we kind of just said, right, let's stop doing anything social media because we're just pushing people into the back of a queue. So it's only going to drive them mad if we're like, come on in for a burger yeah. and they can't get a seat. So we just parked that. And yeah, that's kind of where we are. So it's interesting how you'd say. So obviously now with anything that's starting off, whether it's a person, whether it's a business, social media now is just crazy how yeah. important it is. So like, do you still see that as a huge priority? Now that even I know you have opened new uh, locations, but yeah. is there less of a pressure on you to just promote like your menu, promote your new shops? I yeah, I think it's important to, to notice that like or to note that a food business is a very easy sell. You know, every business is trying to sell itself on social media, but people talk about food so much, so you know it is an easier sell. But what our broad philosophy would be kind of like how the Facebook algorithm works in that like organic reach in Facebook is one of the biggest things so you know if you have a thousand followers and you put up a picture does the algorithm of Facebook let 10 of them see it or 250 of them see it that comes down to how good the stuff you're putting up is we have really strong organic reach because we don't put up crap if you put up loads of pictures of a cat saying thank god it's Friday or something (laughs) and you just do that every week the algorithm will just push you down. It won't let you get to people. Whereas if you put up content that lots of people like and share, uh, the algorithm will say, wow, these people put up good stuff that people want to see, so we better spread it organically for them as well. So that's the battle we're trying to win all the time. So we just don't want to put up... I remember once we put up saying we're closed this Friday and it killed our organic reach for our next three posts because it was just such a boring... Yeah. But it was an important... So we were like, right, we'll never do a piece of information like that. But if you put up a post saying we're going to be opening a new store... People are always interested in that and they share it or, you know, we're going to be giving free burgers away because it's a new store. Like, that always spreads like wildfire. And then the Facebook algorithm is looking at you saying, wait, these people share good stuff. It'll be for our benefit to spread this around as well. So it's like, from a brand perspective, you're seeing seeing Bunsen and it's like getting good news off a friend or something, you know, rather than just seeing Coca-Cola saying it's International Women's Day, you know. That's yeah. the most hollow Facebook you could possibly receive. You Completely, know? Yeah. yeah. And with that, what strikes me there is you were saying when you were working in London yeah. in the Wild Duck that it was just an intense job and you'd basically just be just slumming it out, not not so much slumming it out, but just working, working, working. Are you in that position still now or do you have time off do you get to do you have any other passions or is it just purely 24 7 no no i've got good time off now i mean we opened a place in cork last week so building up to that your time is definitely eroded a bit and and sometimes you would have a couple of weeks that are quiet and then a couple of weeks that are busy but no nothing like every for the first sort of six or for the first say four months every waking hour i think i went to one i went to one um christening that was like an hour and that was one hour that I took off and I remember for the first four months that was really the only moment I really wasn't in bed or in work so there's nothing like that and it it, it, I can't ever conceive of a time where it'll be like that again because you're literally standing there cooking burgers all the time and the problems are just building in your mind and you can't do anything about the problems because you're cooking the people's burgers so your to-do list you add 30 items to your to-do list a day and you solve five in those four months so it takes it takes about it took about six months to turn the corner where the to-do list wasn't growing anymore and you were actually starting to reduce it you know maybe not 30 problems a day but there are 10 things a day being added so you know there's like it's because i travel a bit more now down to cork we're opening or we open there 
that was it's much more chill like to be driving in the car thinking of your problems versus cooking burgers and trying to think of your problems it, it's 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 not as much flat to the mat as it was ever okay yeah and, and, and your job your job changes every three months you know so you're doing hr now and then you're doing marketing the next month and then it's it's really you have to try and cover everything okay and you're saying that you've just opened a new restaurant there in cork and basically what what is the future of bunsen where do you want to see bunsen in say five years time I don't know, yeah, people always ask that. We don't really have a good, smart answer to that. Like, I see always, I see always in, in, in the media, people come out, like Eddie Rockets came out and said, we're going to open up, not, we're going to open 90 restaurants or something, they said next year. And I remember five guys said they were opening 10 restaurants. It, it, it's, it's crazy to commit to that because you don't know if you can deliver that. So our only strategy is to keep opening restaurants in good locations. That's like going fishing, you know, you, you might, you might catch eight of them next year. You might only catch two. But yeah. for now, that would be our plan, to keep opening Bunsen's in good locations, so long as it's still good crack to do so. And, you know, I find it interesting and fun, and you meet lots of good people. So they're the only two metrics I have, is just trying to keep opening them while it makes financial sense and while it makes, you know, uh, lifestyle sense that it's still good fun, and I find it a, a good, interesting thing to do, you know. Cool. And have you had to adjust any of your, maybe your marketing or your plans? Because it's, especially in the last five, six years, I could be wrong, but it's, I'm just basing this off. Like places like Tolteca have kind of taken over. Places like, you know, Five Guys has recently opened. Yeah. Wow Burger now is a few places. Like it seems to be an ever-growing trend that there is going to be more and more specialist kind of eateries or restaurants yeah. that just basically give you something very simple, whether it's chicken, burgers, etc. And they're just basically going to try perfect it. But what I'm trying to say is basically how do you keep that perfection going over years and years of time? Yeah, I guess, you know, when you look at McDonald's, I guess the biggest thing they suffered was that problem that they moved way too much towards standardization, that the product doesn't feel like a real product anymore, you know? Yeah. So we've tried to avoid that as much as possible. Like, we mince all of our own beef in each restaurant every single day fresh. So there's no one really doing that, even the likes of the other burger places. They can't bear to take on that as a cost of labor or just the sheer hassle of it. So that gives us an advantage in that respect, that each burger is being handmade. You know, it's not machine-made or anything else. Um so you really feel and the truth is you feel that our buns aren't made by a big manufacturer so you know each thing each product is going to be slightly different because there's still a human making it at some point so I, I think that's a real point of differentiation for us there um definitely when you scale up you'll encounter a lot of problems uh but that's that's just the nature of any business you just have to take each of them as they come you know um yeah i still think that you know if you were to put a burger in front of me from when we opened a burger now it would be very hard to tell the difference. Okay. And that's something we really will fight to keep. Obviously, you know, an outsider, a consultant would say, you know, you know, move to a central kitchen, stop making your burgers in each restaurant. But for us, that the loss of oversight and quality that that would, that, that would lose for us would be just too substantial. Okay. And probably the last thing I want to ask is, like you've basically told us what happened from day one there, from yeah. junior school all the way up to now opening up your fourth it's your fourth the fourth place yeah, yeah. yeah and like one thing that strikes me is that you know you had your ups and downs you had your different experiences but it might be hard to put into words but how would you being a successful entrepreneur 
like how do you think it'd be best to encourage that at a young age or perhaps you know promote it because I do feel that a lot of it especially in school moving to college as you're saying it's very just kind of you're just pushed you never really you never really get to experience a true bit of independence in my opinion anyway yeah I know what you mean that's a tough one I guess I remember like I studied business studies in school and it was very uh, academic I don't know what the curriculum is like for it now but it was sort of like one of the questions on the short on the short questions was like name five characteristics of an entrepreneur and you're studying that exam and you're trying to remember going you know like um you know likes risk uh you know time management all these yeah. these crazy things and you're just reeling off a list is that going to make you a better business person or a better entrepreneur no way you know the, learning off a list of characteristics of an entrepreneur it's it's that's the thing that really stuck out so what I would say is that you'd be way better off to try and say, look, everyone set up a company. Here's 20 euro seed capital. Let's see if you can come back at the end at the end of the year having done something with this. Whether you had some spectacular disaster or you know you turned it into 100 euros, that would be the way to do it. So more practical. I know there's like organizations out there that like Froag and places that do this, but you know within the school, I don't know if there's anything going on like that, those sort of small business clubs, but that would be something... I mean, more practical because for having studied best and studied business for leaving search, you know, there's no instruction of how do you go and, you know, uh, incorporate a company. You know, that, 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 that's the very first thing you have to do on the first day of a business and that's the one thing you're not taught. So there's lots of administrative stuff like that, that you're, you, 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 practical advice that, that could be better. I don't really have an obvious solution to how you embed that in the curriculum. So I just think I can only, like everybody, pick out the problems but not give the solution I'll leave that one to the business teachers yeah, <laughs> to yeah. pluck out and lastly is uh, it's going to be tradition moving forward with the, uh, the podcast I'm going to give you a few quick fire questions okay. so feel Try free my best. to do your best here so I'll kick it off with your favourite food sauce my favourite food or sauce or favourite sauce, sauce for a food yeah. favourite sauce for a food oh, that's tough hmm favourite Really now, I would say favorite. It's got to be ketchup, I suppose. Okay, classical. Yeah. Your favorite St. Michael's teacher. This could be controversial. My favorite St. Michael's teacher. Jesus, that's very <laughs> controversial. Uh, I could definitely list the ones that I didn't get on. With. <laughs> uh, I always got on very well with Anne Harrow, who's my Spanish teacher. Thought Dave Wilson was a very good teacher as well. Always did stuff that was outside the box. Um, yeah, mostly I had great experiences with the teachers here, you know. I, I, I'd say they would say I wrecked their head, but yeah. I mean, that's probably the nature of the student-teacher relationship. Yeah. Uh, apart from Bunsen, what do you think is the best burger in Dublin? Apart from Bunsen, what do I think is the best burger? I was raised in on the Elephant and Castle burger, which I used to always go to as a kid, so if I was ever going for a burger outside Bunsen, I would normally go there. Their Elephant burger is very good. Yeah, nice spot. Night in or night out? <sighs> Night in or night out? <laughs> yeah, I'd say probably a night out. Nice. Yeah. And your favourite film? My favourite film? That is very tough. I guess I'd have to go for a classic like... Dumb and Dumber? Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Asking questions or answering them? Uh. Oh, you'd have to give me more context for that, but no, I'd need I'd need 
Probably asking. Okay. And last but not least, sum yourself up in three words. Oh, fuck. <laughs> That's two. That's two. <laughs> uh, Um, realistic not pessimistic <laughs> fair yeah anyway that pretty much wraps it up uh, can't thank you enough Tom